1998, God had a vision for Jubilee Fellowship Church and you. We have all been blessed to be a part of something unique and special, but we are not done yet. At our Lone Tree and Highlands Ranch campuses, we have outgrown our children's department and we need to make more space for this valuable ministry. What a great problem to have. Our project to expand Lone Tree and Highlands Ranch will give us the room that we need for growth. This project will cost $1.2 million. Now that may sound like a lot, but with God's people and the God of miracles, it's totally possible. Now let's break that down. If 1,200 people gave $1,000, we'll reach this goal. But what if the whole church came together? That's only $350 per person. That's about how much the average person spends on coffee every three months. God can do this through you as we trust Him with our future. He has blessed our past and He will bless the future. We ask you to pray. Everyone can pray and believe for a miracle. We ask you to give, a one-time gift or a monthly pledge. We ask everyone to believe and to bless the future of JFC. Sort of just crescendo in crescendo again. Okay. Um, hey, we'll use that as our lead-in real quick. Last week, we spent some time in our service collecting the cards. If you remember, how much came in? We're raising 1.2, 300,000 came in last weekend. So, so 25% of it right off the bat came in. Couldn't be more thrilled than, than the response right there. Here's what we'd like to do this week. I recognize two things. Uh, some of you... We're not here and we're not able to give your card, so obviously there's still time to do that. And if you um, would like to do that, if you didn't bring your card, uh, forgot it, whatever the case would be, out in the foyer at the Connect, Grow, Serve table, we have those cards. Pick it up, fill it out. You can turn it in. If you did bring them, drop it in the offering bucket or on the way out, right by the exit, you'll find a box right there that is actually for the cards, put it in there. The second thing that I realize is that some of you, uh, I, I, I've just done this long enough to know how it works, some don't commit till they find out whether or not, hey, is it a project that's going? Is it a project that's going to happen? What's going on with it? Here's our stance on it. I felt like if we got at least 20% of it, we would continue to move forward on it. We would have enough momentum to be able to capitalize on it. So for sure, we're going to do it. So if you're sitting out there going, okay, what do you need right now? Here, here's the number one need that, that we have. It is the one-time gifts. The monthly is important, no question about it, in order to finish up the project. But the one-time gifts give us the momentum to get going on the project, and then we can rely on the monthly gifts. Plus, if we have to take some out of budget somehow, um, I'm not sure exactly what we would do with that, but I would go to the board and I would share with the board where that is, and the board myself would come up with an idea of, okay, here's, here's what we do then to keep the project going in the meantime. But our number one need right now would be one-time gifts. So if you are sitting out there and you just were like, hey, I wanted to hear what came in first. I wanted to see if God's doing it. It's obvious that that's what's taking place. 25%, I'm absolutely thrilled with that. If we could get to, here's, here's our goal, would like to get to 50% to start construction. 50% is the number that I have in my head where I feel like at 50% it's a manageable thing for us to be able to pay for it without going into debt. We can then pay the monthly off. Does that, does that make sense to what we're trying to say? Um, let me just also address this. Someone asked me, Pastor Dan asked me, he said, if we don't raise all of it, uh, does that stop the project? What would you do at that point? Um, here's, here's what I would do. I feel like that the Lord has said to do it. It's obvious that we need to make this response because to not make the response to it would hinder the growth of our church in the future. You, you have to connect how important it is to minister to children to what we do in the future. Those two things go hand in hand with each other. So I would do this. If it were necessary for us to approach our lender and say, look, uh, we've got X amount of dollars that's been given. We've got X amount in pledges. Would you allow us to use the pledges as collateral? Then I would approach it that way and see if we couldn't put a deal together that way. But what's best for the church, 
not what's best for me, but what's best for the church is to pay cash for this. Do you agree with that? That is what's best for this church. So my goal and what I'm working on is to pay cash for this project, to have it all cashed out by the time that we're done, not to mortgage any of this if I can avoid that. I simply don't want to pay the interest on it. That, more than anything else, that's what's driving me in my mind. I just don't want to waste God's money on paying interest if I don't have to. So if you are in a position where you're just like, okay, we were praying about it, waiting to hear from you, Pastor, whether or not the project's going to go forward and where we are in it, 25% came in. We would like to hit 50%. Uh, I believe we could do that even this weekend. So if you're sitting out there and you're in a position, you're like, what do you need? What would you like? Then I would say if you could give one-time gifts, that would be the most important thing we could receive right now because it would allow us to move forward with it instantaneously and, uh, and get this project moving. I, I would love to have it done by the end of summer, and that's a possibility without any question. It's not a major construction project. It's renovation. We're not even knocking down load-bearing walls. It's all internal stuff that can be easily done and then cosmetic issues and then relocation issues. So it's all of those things that can be done quickly and easily. Above everything else, thanks. Thanks for making it possible. Thanks for what you gave last week. Thanks for making it easy for me. It really is a joy to sit up here and to be able to bring that to you. And I, I just am so appreciative of that. Uh, two, two other things, three other things that I need to just uh, clean up before I jump to the message. Israel trip, five spots left to fill the bus. Five spots. So I got a text. Literally, I was sitting right there at the end of the worship. Somebody texted me and said, can I get two spots? Here's what I said to them. First come, first serve. I'm about to stand up in front of the folks this weekend in the next four services. It's actually going to be nine services, ten services, because Lakewood starts their Saturday night service right now at 6 o'clock. We expand one more service. Ten services this weekend. So ten times people are going to hear we have five spots left. So I, I texted the guy back real quick, and I said, listen, if these folks that are interested in going, they need to get their money here to hold their spot. I'm not going to hold their spot on their word. Money is what holds their spot. So I'm letting you know, if you're interested in going to Israel, five spots left. It's $5,000 a person. The trip is in September. If you want more information, connect, serve, grow. We'll have that out there. If you're ready to go, uh, go ahead and um, bring your deposit. It's $1,000, and that'll hold your spot uh, for the trip. Live stream people. We talked last week about our live stream people. If you live stream us right now, you're sitting there watching the service and you are enjoying church via the live stream, and that's your normal way of attending JFC, do me a favor. Minimize your screen and hit the survey tab. We're trying to calculate right now how many people uh, are a part of our online church so that we can better serve you. Your information will be kept confidential. We had uh, a tremendous number last week who responded to it, but we wanted to go one more weekend with it for those who may not have been on last weekend. And if you do attend JFC normally through the download of the live stream, would you please minimize your screen right now? You're, you're the only ones able to do it. Minimize your screen, click the uh, survey tab, fill it out. There's three and a half questions right there that we need from you and we'll protect your information. Um, and then last but not least, and maybe the most important announcement that I can make this weekend, I am a grandpa one more time. How about that? So at all of our campuses, let me give you that good news. Her name is Providence Christine, named after her nana. She was uh, eight pounds, two ounces. She was 19 inches long. Um, it, went, it went, this, is that her behind? Yeah, there she is. She, she's a pillar baby without any question. Looks, looks like her daddy. She's got blonde hair. You can see it there. Um, of the six children, there's only one that looks like me. I was a little disappointed in that, but, but love them all equally, so it's all, it's all good. Um, here's, here's how it went for Amy. Three pushes, and that was it. <laughs> she even, I, I shared with our staff, this is, this, is, this is how good God was to her. The last pregnancy, for those who remember, if you were here long enough, when she had Bronwyn, Bronwyn had a hole in her stomach that allowed her intestines to move up 
uh, into her chest cavity, and it's a very serious thing that happens, and the baby was in the hospital, and they had to do surgery, and it scared Amy to death. You can imagine. Imagine as a mom, you go through that. Of course, the enemy then wants to exploit that in your next pregnancy, just constantly battling her for fear and what's going to happen with this baby. This is how this went down. She had that baby, um, three pushes, the baby came out, and the doctor had, I believe it was called a white kit, and on your sixth pregnancy or past your fifth, the, the possibility to bleed excessively is there uh, in that case. So they were prepared for, for that to happen. She could bleed out. This is the truth of the matter. Um, there was no blood. And the doctor looked at us and said, it's the most unusual thing I've ever seen. I, I've never seen it like this before. So Amy goes, well, is everything okay then? Where, where is the blood? And the doctor said, it's in your veins. Don't worry. Everything's, <laughs> everything's okay. And literally, so she went home yesterday, had the baby Thursday, went home yesterday. Um, they're doing fine. Chris and I went down last night to check on them. Everything's fine. She texted me this morning. She said they slept all night long uh, last night. She said, she said that God completely removed the fear that the enemy was trying to, to put on her. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your concern. Um, give her a month or so, and she'll be back around. You can meet the baby. But number six, how about that? Five girls, one boy. Pray for the boy. <laughs> Although, trust me, he can hold his own, man. <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and jump into our message. Our series is called Believe. Uh, I, I have been overwhelmed with the response to believe. In fact, if there were any one thing that I would say has become a theme that I'm getting out of it is people saying that it may be uh, their favorite series that they've, um, that they've ever participated in. And I think why, uh, I, I think God is, is, is not, not just restoring, but developing greater faith in people. Here's what we're saying. One of the proofs that you're growing spiritually is that your faith is growing. And when faith grows, belief grows. So that when we see that happening in our lives, we can point to some, there's a there's a physical issue that we can point to that we can say, look at what God is doing in me. And I think what we're seeing happen in our church is a lot of people are believing God for a lot. So here's, here's how I would phrase it. There's a lot of recovery and a lot of discovery that's going on right now. I'm real excited about that. I'm thrilled about that. And so, man, thank God for that right there. Uh, we're going to use John chapter 6 tonight, verses 1 through 14. Now, last week, here's what I did. I took those scriptures uh, that we read from Mark's gospel, and we did not have them in the notes because there were so many. Again, this week, the notes didn't allow for me to put all the scriptures. So what I had said last week is that you want to bring your Bible in case we do things like that. So I planned on purpose to do that so that you'd bring your Bible. So how many of you this time brought your Bibles with you? Let me see. Now some of you just raise, hold your Bible up because I know how that, I got it with me and you have, you have no Bible. Raise your, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, there we go. Very good. All, some of you, all you did um, was, was, was just fake that right there, I recognize. Just go, look off the person next to you or act like you got it. John chapter 6, 1 through 14 is what we're going to use for our text. Uh, I'm reading out of the NIV, so it may be a little bit different than what your translation says, but it's close enough where it'll bring it all together. So um, let, me, let me begin. John chapter 6, verse 1 begins this way. Sometime after this. Now the after this are the things that we've been reading in Mark's gospel. John's gospel in this part is paralleling Mark's gospel. And while John doesn't use every one of the illustrations of the things that Jesus did, he uses some of the things that Jesus did. What is that? Why don't all four gospels correspond perfectly? Well, here's, here's why. You have four different people who are writing about it from their point of view. If the Bible was fake... Imagine that all four people would have gotten together and copied everything word for word so that it looked like it was just absolutely perfect. But if it's the genuine deal and four people who witnessed it or had it told to them were to write down their understanding of it at different times, you would find stories that are very similar, but they would concentrate on specific details that were important in their mind. Does that make sense? So while you're reading the Gospels, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because those three guys wrote almost simultaneously. John's Gospel is left out. John wrote his sometimes later. When you look at all four Gospels, 
they, they all tell the same story, but they tell it from their point of view. So when you read things like, um, oh, I don't know, last week when we, we, we talked about the man who had the thousand demons in him, one of the gospels said that there were two men. One of the gospels said that there were one men. Does it change the story? No, it doesn't change the story. What it does is it tells us that you had two different people who saw an event for someone who saw it. It's like if you went to court and you brought up witnesses. Witnesses tell the event from their point of view. Does that make sense? But they're still telling the same story. So what we have now, John's account of the stories and the things that were going on. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So when it begins saying these words, sometimes after this, the this are the things that we've been reading about. The woman who was healed of the issue of blood. Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. The man who had the demons being cast out of him. So we pick up the story. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Verse 3, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Let's just stop there. Let me talk about these first six verses, and then we'll jump back into the story in just a bit. I wrote down this question to begin, why are you asking me? Philip is being asked the question, where are we going to buy food for these people to eat? Verse 6 then makes the comment, John comments, Jesus is asking this question because he's testing Philip. And I wrote down the thought, why are you asking me, God? So let me put it to you in these terms. Whenever God asks a question, does he ask a question because he lacks the knowledge? All right, then why in the world would God waste the time to ask the question? If he already knows the answer, why in the world would God ask the question? Any thoughts? That's not the Holy Spirit. Don't get it. Here, all right. I have to have fun with things like that. If you hear it, I hear it. So it's hard for me to ignore things like that. It's called ADD. If I say it, it goes out of my mind. If I don't say it, I begin to think about, I wonder who that could be right now. I wonder if my wife's trying to call me. Oh, shoot, I left my phone in the car. Shouldn't have done that. I wonder if my battery's almost out. All these things begin to go through my mind. It's, all, it's just... If I say it, it gets out of my mind, I can go on. All right. If God doesn't lack the information, why ask the question? It's for us. God doesn't lack the information. God asks the question because most of the time what God is trying to do is to get a person to realize where they are, why they are, or what's happened because of a situation. God never lacks the information. So when God asks a question, it's never because God doesn't know. God is not sitting there shocked. Jesus is not sitting there right there hoping, hey, I can't figure out what to do about these people. I'm hoping you guys can help me figure out how we're going to feed these people. He didn't go, you know what Proverbs says? In the multitude of counselors is good knowledge. Could you guys maybe kick up an idea? 7-Eleven, what can we do right now to help these people out? So God doesn't ask the question because he lacks the knowledge. God asks the question because he wants us to recognize something. And that just seems to be the way that it always works. All the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Now you remember that the man and the woman are created in the perfect environment. It's called Eden. Here was their job. God put them in a garden to take care of the garden. I was reading that. I, I have a class the first Saturday of every month. Let me throw this out. I'll advertise for it very quickly. If you are a teacher, if you are in ministry, if you want to be in ministry, I teach a class the first Saturday of every morning at um, 8 o'clock in the morning at the Bridge Center. The Bridge Center is located right over on Yosemite and 470. It's right behind that great big Starbucks on Maximus. You know what I'm talking about right there? And I teach that class. It's open to anybody who would like to come. Here's what the class is for. I just spend time 
going over the last 25 years of my ministry with people who are trying to get started in ministry or trying to learn more about ministry or trying to figure out how to teach. I like to spend time teaching people. So this morning I was with them and I was talking on the subject of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and the tree of life. And on my way home, something that the Lord spoke to me, this isn't in your notes, I, I may make a message out of this. I think it's a relevant issue to anybody who has a job. One of the tricks of getting in the right job is finding a job, two things. One, where you feel like you were created to do that thing. And number two, something that you're taking care of that you're going to give answer to God for what you did with it. Here's what Adam and Eve had that I think sets a precedent for the rest of mankind. God created them in an environment and gave them the responsibility to take care of the garden, and the garden was created for them to take care of. I think that whatever we do with our lives, we should have a sense that God created me to do this thing. Do you agree with that? And that there should be a sense that we're going to give answer for how we took care of that thing. For most of us, how we end up in a job is completely different. Most of us don't spend time asking God, what did you create me to do? What we do, here's the system. We graduate high school. We go to college the following year. It costs tens of thousands of dollars to go to school, yes or no. The pressure is on from day one, name your major. Am I telling the truth? That child then is put under the pressure of naming a major. Most people pick a major based on what they can do to make the most money with their life. Seldom do they spend the time asking, what was I created to do? And what am I going to take care of that I'll ultimately give an answer to God for what I did with my time and with my life? And I think when a person is forced to choose something, it's only by accident if you end up in something that you really like. In fact, I know tons of people who are 40 and 50 years old who don't like what they do, but it's too late now, yes or no? Mortgages, children, bills, and life responsibility force us into a channel. Here's what we're hoping. I can retire from it and find something that I really want to do. You're awfully quiet right now. Am I just telling the truth? Somewhere in this this morning, I felt like the Lord said to me, it's something that you need to teach. I created people to do specific things, and they're going to give answer for that thing that they do. They need to feel the responsibility that what they're doing matters to me and that it's supposed to be brought back to me as an offering or a gift. There's something to maybe I'm Maybe I'm saying it too early. Maybe I'm saying something that's not put together yet. But does it make any sense? Jesus asked Philip, where are we going to get food to feed these people? God never asked the question because he lacks the answer. He asked the question because he wants us to get the answer. It goes all the way back to the garden. God creates the man. He creates the woman. He puts them in the garden. The Bible records this. In the middle of the garden were two trees, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The garden was actually filled with many trees, thousands of trees. The only don't that God gave the man and the woman, don't eat from the knowledge of the good and evil because the day you eat of it, you shall surely. And I ask the question every time. They went right out, they ate of the tree, did they die? Well, at least not physically, right? It was a spiritual death. Okay, do you remember the story? They eat of the tree. The Bible says that their eyes were opened. God does what he always does. Somewhere in the afternoon, God shows up to hang out with the man and the woman. This was God's methodology for his creation. He created the man and the woman in order to fellowship with him. He comes in the afternoon to hang out with the man and the woman. Normally, the man and the woman would run when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This time, they hide from the presence of the Lord. God asks a question. Does anybody remember the question? Adam, where are you? Here's my question to you again. Did God lack the knowledge? Why did he ask the question? 
did Adam know where he was? Did Adam know where he was? Behind a tree. That wasn't the question, was it? The question is, where are you? In other words, why are you hiding from me? There were three questions God asked that day. The first one was, where are you? Adam answers God and said, I was afraid because I heard you and I hid. God asks him, did you eat of the fruit? Adam actually tells him that's what happened. So God asks him, who told you that you were naked? That's why Adam hid. We were naked. And then last but not least, God asked this question. What have you done? And again, I'm going to ask you the question right now. Did God lack the information on what Adam and Eve had done? Nope. What was he trying to get them to understand? What have you done with your life? What have you done to my creation? What have you done to yourself? Whenever God asks a question, it's not because God lacks the information. It's because he's trying to get us to understand information. I put in your notes the importance of understanding that is that Jesus, when he asked Philip the question, Jesus is not sitting there nervous about how he's going to feed these people. Jesus is asking Philip the question because he wants to check on the level of Philip's faith. When he asked Philip, what are we going to do to feed these people? Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Philip would have turned to God and said this, we watched you cast a thousand demons out of a man. We watched you get out of a boat and a woman who had been internally bleeding for 12 years touches the hem of your garment and she's healed. While that's going on, you're on your way to Jairus' house, his daughter dies, and you go there and raise her from the dead. I don't know where we're going to get food, but I bet you could do something really cool right now if you wanted to. <laughs> yes or no, that, doesn't that seem to be the most logical answer that the guy could have given? It seems to me that if he just would have recognized, here's Jesus and all the things that Jesus is capable of, he could have given a much better answer than he gave. What was his answer? 200 denarii is not enough to feed these people. How much money is 200 denarii? It's 200 days worth of a man's salary. Philip answers Jesus in the most disappointing terms maybe ever answered. Jesus does all this miraculous work and Philip answers him in the most unsupernatural way, doesn't he? Let me ask the question because I put it in my notes. What is it? about the fact that we can be around Jesus, be around the supernatural, and so quickly forget that Jesus is supernatural. Why is it so easy to always fall back into the habit of seeing our lives through natural rather than supernatural eyes? We're around Jesus and we see Jesus do supernatural things. When God asks us questions like that, doesn't it seem to you that God is asking if we have faith rather than asking us to give him good advice? You're not following me? I have an exercise for you. I want to ask you a question. God asked me this question last year sometime. It was an interesting question. Here's the question. Who are you? If you're taking notes, we don't have a lot of time to do this. Time would really prevent it. This question is better answered if you're a studier of the Word of God, every pastor that's listening to me, every campus that's tuning in right now, whether you're in your car, whether you're on the beach, whether you sit at one of our campuses, or you're here right now at Lone Tree with me, this question is probably better answered in your quiet time when you're all by yourself and you can think about it. But if God were to ask you the question, or your pastor in this case, if I were to ask you the question, who are you? How would you fill in the blank? And I'm serious about it. Don't just take it right now as just a question that's thrown out there. How would you answer the question? Because I sat down with a pen and a paper and I tried to write down who I am. Here's what I did. I began to write down what I do to describe who I am. 
what I'm accomplishing, the work that I have going on in my life. I wrote down all of the interesting things around me that I was involved in to describe who I am. I felt like the Lord said, who are you? Write it down, describe it for me. God didn't lack the information. God needed me to see something. Here was the problem. I was equating who I was with what I was doing. Then here was the question. What if what I was doing was taking away from me? Who am I then? I want to dare you. I'd like to push you spiritually. I'd like to ask you five minutes this, this week sometime, write the question, who am I? And begin to write down the adjectives of how you describe yourself. I bet the easiest thing that you'll fall back on is what you do. Let me give you the right answer. Who you are should begin and end, if you're a believer, with God. If you're not a believer, you're left with what you do to make a living. That's a sad place to be at. You're left with what you do for entertainment. You're left with what you do to occupy your time. If you're a believer, it should begin and end with God. I spent just maybe an hour doing this, and it is now revolutioned, revolutionized how I, I, I go this coming Friday. I'm speaking at a conference this Friday. Every conference you speak at, they send you a little bio, and they want you to describe yourself. I used to describe myself based on I'm a pastor who speaks at conferences, who teaches with a church, the number of people, all based on performance issues. Anybody? Now, it's completely changed. My bio for the conference I speak at this Friday reads this way. I am a believer. Married for 29 years with five children. I wrote five and a half grandchildren at the time. And I love Jesus. And I submitted that as my bio. They printed that, and that's what it says about me. Everybody else has a list of education, accomplishment, achievement, and awards, and qualifications to be speaking at this event this Friday. It's called the Convergence Conference. Google it. You'll find it. Look at my bio. Everybody else has listed THDs. MDivs, all their accomplishments. Mine says, believer, husband, father, grandfather, then pastor. And I stopped right there. Who am I? I'm a believer. I love Jesus. When you find your answer in that, listen to me, it frees your life Completely. Why am I even sharing this with you? If God were to ask you the question tonight, who are you? He doesn't lack the information. He wants you to know who you are. If it doesn't begin and end with him, how are you ever going to move into the place of the supernatural if your life doesn't begin in the place of, I'm a believer before I'm anything else? Come over here to this side. Listen to me. You want miracles in your life? You want to see people healed? You want God to provide for you? You want more than enough? You want to know God in supernatural ways? How are you going to go to that level if your life doesn't begin on the simplest plane, I'm a believer before I'm anything else? Does that make any sense? I challenge you today. Go home, right? Who are you? Spend some time figuring it out. Because if God asks you that question, and I think it is God asking that question right now, who are you? Fill in the blank. Decide. Because we want supernatural things all around us. But if we don't even begin at the very basic thing of, I'm a believer before I'm anything else, how are you ever going to believe for miracles? Does that make sense? All right, second part of this, 
This chapter goes on to, to pick up this way. Verse 7 in John 5, just one verse. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. That is a discouraging reply, yes or no. I mean, he doesn't even say, if we could gather together 800 days worth of pay, we could at least make a dent in this. Look at him. Even if we got enough together, it wouldn't even give the people here one bite of food. When I wrote that down, it occurred to me, and this is what I wrote, without an excuse. Does this make any sense to anybody here? Once you've experienced the supernatural, you're forever without an excuse when it comes to needing the supernatural to happen in your life. No, no, I, I want you to follow me. They just experienced Jesus casting out a thousand demons into a herd of pigs who ran down the hill over the edge and all drowned. They get in the boat, go back to the other side of the lake. So many people are there. Jesus can't even get his arms up, the Bible says. A woman with an issue of internal bleeding for 12 years, the Bible says she had spent all of her money on the doctors only to grow no better, but become worse. She tells herself, if I can just touch Jesus' garment, I'll be made well. She reaches out, touches the hem of his garment, and the Bible says Jesus perceives that power leaves his body, so he asks the disciples, who touched me? Peter's answer is, everybody's touching you. But Jesus turns around and he spots the woman eye to eye. She falls on her knees and Jesus tells her, your faith has made you well. Get up and go your way. Wow. He's on his way to Jairus, the synagogue ruler's house. The servants from Jairus meet Jesus and this is what they tell him. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. And this is what Jesus said. Ignore what they say. Let's keep going to your house. He gets to Jairus' house, he puts everybody out of the room, and he tells the little girl, arise, and he raises her from the dead. This is what the disciples have experienced in just the last few weeks. Yes or no, if you experience that, feeding 5,000 people would seem to not be a problem. Do, do you agree with what I'm saying? And yet the man's answer, having eyeball witness these things, is to tell Jesus if we had 200 days worth of money, it wouldn't even give people a bite. I wrote in my notes the most amazing thing. They go to the demoniac, the bleeding woman, Jairus' daughter. How about this? They're with Jesus at the wedding in Cana when he takes just simple water and turns it into wine. They're with Jesus when he's at Bethesda and a man who for 40 years hasn't been able to walk. Jesus tells him, get up, take your mat, and go your way. They're with him as he does miracle after miracle after miracle. And then they come to one where 5,000 people are in a deserted place with Jesus. They're hungry, and Jesus says, what are we going to give them to eat? And immediately they fall back to the natural rather than the supernatural. I want to make a statement to you. It's so easy to judge Philip. He be us. Here's my demonstration. Anybody in this room ever experienced the supernatural provision of God? Raise your hand and hold it up for just a second. If you have not, you do not need to respond. There's no condemnation. Only those who have experienced God's provision. Look around the room right now. You tell me the number. 80%? 90%? What's the number? 90? 90? Conservatively 90? Okay, look at me. If you've experienced God's provision in your life, then the next time you have a need, you're without excuse. You have no excuse to fall back on no faith. You don't hear what I'm saying? If you have experienced God's provision in your life, you are without excuse from that point forward. Here's the problem. Any thinking that begins with what I have and ends with what I can do is always going to mislead you. 
All your thinking should always begin with what God has and what God can do. All thinking that begins and ends with you is always going to end bad. Do you agree with that? I think about it for a moment. I am not standing up here judging Philip. I don't think Philip is a bad guy. I think Philip is probably one of the wisest men who ever lived. He walked with Jesus for three years, saw the miracles, but why would his faith instantly go to the natural? Here's why. Faith is not static. Just because you have this huge experience with God doesn't mean your faith now has hit this new level and it can't back up. Faith is present tense. Just after this experience, they get in a boat. Jesus asked them this question, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples begin to argue amongst themselves, Jesus is mad at us because we didn't bring bread. <laughs> and Jesus says to them, are your hearts hardened? Do you not remember the 4,000? Do you not remember the 5,000, I can produce bread if I snap my fingers. This isn't about bread. It's about the lives of the Pharisee that choke your faith. Faith is not linear. You don't have a faith experience and then keep walking the tightrope of faith. Faith can go backwards too. Faith is not just simply one-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional. The same person who has this great experience with God over here can be weak in faith over here. Here's what Paul said. Faith comes by not by having heard. No, no, follow me. Many people in this room, here's the problem. You had God do something for your life six months ago or six years ago. Dude, that's old manna. You can't eat it anymore. You got to have a present tense experience with God. Right. You got to remind yourself of what God can do right now. You need to be experiencing hearing God say, I can heal you now. Here's what Philip should have done. Jesus, I don't know what we're going to do, but I bet you do. Or how about this? Jesus, I don't have any money, but I bet you do. How about this? Jesus needs to pay his taxes. Where does he get the money from? Well, think about it. We read those stories 2,000 years later, and they're so cleaned up now. It's like, it's like the things we hear in Sunday school. They have a picture of a fish with a coin in its mouth. And the little kid gets up and pulls the coin out of his mouth. Ha I've got the coin. It, it takes the supernatural and relegates it to Aesop's fables. It really happened. Jesus needs money. So he says, go down there and get that fish. Opens his mouth and the coin is in there to pay the tax. I don't know how Jesus was going to do it. He could have said this, move that rock. And underneath the rock is a pound of gold. I don't know. How about this? Reach into my cloak. This is manna from heaven. Give it out to every... I don't know how he was going to do it, but I know this. Once we've experienced the supernatural, we're forever without excuse of believing in the supernatural. Why... Would this man suddenly go from all of these miracles back to no faith? I don't know other than to say to you, why can you have God move in your life in such a powerful way and then the very next time there's a need, be full of doubt and unbelief? Here's why. All thinking that begins and ends with you will always go bad. It's got to begin and end with who God is and what God can do and what God did before and what God promised to do again. Does that make sense? Verse 8 through 11. Let me just read it. 
goes this way. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Wouldn't it have been wonderful if he said to Jesus, we have five loaves and two fish. Here you go. Why does he have to make the statement, we have five loaves and two fish, but how far is that going to go? Wasn't he also there when Jesus did everything he did? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated. As much as they wanted, he did the same with the fish. I wrote in my notes the next thought right there. God doesn't want much, just all you have in your hand. I'll say it one more time. God doesn't want much, just all you have. Hear me on this issue. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary, doesn't he? At the wedding in Cana, what was the main ingredient? Water. Do you think they went and got the water from some special well that had never been used before? Let me ask you this. Do you think that the pots that they used were pots made out of clay that had never been tried before? How about this? Do you think that after the miracle was over, the people who knew how to make a buck went and found those pots and tried to sell them to people? Don't believe that's true? Come with me to Israel. We go to Cana in Galilee. And every time we go, here's what happens. Some dude comes out schlepping a bunch of wine, and this is what he says. This is the same wine left over from the miracle at Cana. And I've tasted it, and it tastes like it's been there for about 2,000 years. It's the nastiest stuff you've ever had in your life. <laughs> I wonder how many times they went back to the exact spot that Jesus was standing in and they thought to themselves, if we just stand here and say exactly what he said, we can recreate the miracle. I wonder if they thought if we could just get these pots and fill them to the exact level Jesus filled them to, we could get the miracle. It just seems to me that when God does supernatural things, he's not looking for the things that we're not able to produce. He, how about this? When Moses stands before God and God tells him, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses argues with God and says, who am I and why would they believe me? God doesn't debate with Moses. This is what he says. What's in your hand? Moses said, it's my staff. What did God tell him? Give it to me. As soon as he gives it to God, it becomes supernatural. Here's what's really interesting. The moment he picked it back up, it turned into a stick. You want to know the truth? Let me tell you the truth about something, right? I want you to hear me. It's not self-serving for me to say this. Everything we need to complete this project, we have in the house right now. We don't need to go to a bank. We don't need to ask anybody outside of our church to help us complete this project. We have it in our hand. If our people would understand what I've got, I will give to God. When I started the church, I was 33, and I was afraid to stand up here and look people older than me in the eye and say things like that. I'm 49, I'm your pastor, get over it. I'm serious. 
It is my job to spiritually guide, guard, and work for God in this house. It is my job to say to you, if you don't like it, you have a plethora of places where you can go and they'll tell you what you want to hear. But I'm the pastor of this house and I am going to say, in this house, we have everything that we need. If we give it to God, he can multiply it. He can take the normal, the natural. We may not have 1.2 million amongst us, but if we take what we have and give it to God, he can multiply it. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, never tithe another dollar. Never give another dime. Because if you don't believe that God multiplies what you give, you're making a critical mistake. Never pray another prayer. Never believe for anything ever again. Your belief system should be completely based on the fact that God takes what I have that's normal, natural, ordinary, and when I give it to him, it becomes supernatural. Do you believe that? Your marriage, give it to him so it becomes supernatural. Quit trying to fix it yourself. Give it to God. That is good. It's, yes. What word would you pick for it? Yes. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. How about this? Multiplication comes from giving what we have to him. Here's the most amazing part. I ask you, use your imagination for just a moment. They have five loaves of bread, two fish. Where did the miracle take place? Was it when they presented it to Jesus Or was it when the disciples were giving it out to the people? Here's what happened. They presented it to Jesus. He did the three things he does every time something's given to him. He blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. He chose this time to use the disciples to be the recipient of forever in history The disciples were the ones who got to witness a miracle from their own hands. As they reached into the basket, there was enough to give, enough to give. This is where the tithe becomes crucial. When you give it to God, there's enough then to give, enough to give. You look at it this way. There's only five and two. It's not enough. So I'm going to hold on to it. What do you have? Five and two. And you want to know what? It's not enough to feed everybody. Give it to God. And what does he do with it? I've never been more bold teaching on it than I am right now. And God is totally, none of this is in my notes. None of this was at our pastor's meeting, was it? Not one of these words. This is totally the Holy Spirit telling me this right now. You hold on to it because you think There's not enough, so I've got to make it last. You will not have enough that way. God takes the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Multiplication comes from giving him what? Give your children to him. That's scary for people. Because you think, I can take better care of them than God can. If I give them to God, they'll send them to Africa. (laughs) I know how it works. Yes or no? If I give them to God, something terrible is going to happen. No. You know what's going to happen? You give your kids to God, and every desire that you ever wanted for them will happen. That does not mean that they will become lawyers or doctors necessarily. It means they will be fulfilled, happy productive people, healthy, anybody. (laughs) The miraculous is in giving to him. Last but not least, let me just finish it, 12 to 14. You got to be kidding me. Twelve to fourteen. When they had all had enough to eat, those are important words. 
When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. I think that maybe the most significant thing to see right there, and I put it in your notes, that whenever God does whatever he does, there's always one common denominator. There's more than enough. When I was a new believer, I got lucky and I got into a class with a guy who taught all the names of God in the Old Testament. Just real quickly, I don't have any time to, to, to do justice to this, but um, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself by experience. Whenever someone would have an experience with God, God would reveal himself and he'd give himself a name via that experience. Like, for instance, when someone was healed for the very first time in Scripture, God was called Jehovah Rapha. That means in Hebrew, Jehovah my healer. So we got a facet of God's character by seeing that God heals. When God provided for his people, he was called Jehovah Jireh, God my provider. One of the names of God in the Old Testament, when God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to, <laughs> Abraham is a 90-year-old man unable in himself to produce a child. And here's what God tells him. I'm going to give you offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham looked at that and he said, come on. What are you smoking? Give me, come on. You live in Colorado or what? I mean, I've been waiting for a place to fit that in. I've been waiting... For the last two months, I've been like, where can I fit that in in a message? Where, where, where is that? Yeah, okay. And you know, if you're sitting there right now, I don't, I don't, you're chuckling because you're like, everybody else is like, what is that? Ask on the way home. It's a, it's a very, it's one of those jokes, it's good. You'll, you'll get it. So God tells him this. And then the very next, I, I, think, I believe it's Genesis, it's 14 or 7, I think it's 17, Genesis 17. God says this to Abraham. And Abraham just goes to God, how can this be? And this is what God said. I am El Shaddai. Translated from Hebrew to English, here's what it means. I am more than capable of meeting any need you have. My friend, my friend, listen to me. Any need you have, he is more than capable of meeting. You don't have anything in your life that God does not have the resource to not only meet, but when he's done, you can collect the fragments and it'll last you for the rest of your life. Your children, give them to God. He'll give you more than enough. Your marriage, give it to God. He'll give you more than enough. Your business, give it to God. He'll give you more than enough. Here's where I challenge you, sir. My friends, Lady, look me in the eye and listen to me tell you the truth right now. Here's where I want you to engage God in this message. What is going on in your life where you don't have enough? Because that's where you need to engage a God who is more than enough. If you are sitting there trying to figure out how I'm going to make it happen, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your health, maybe it's, maybe it's something that, maybe it's not of the normal variety of things that a preacher would stand up here and name. Maybe it's something that is so difficult that, that you're embarrassed to even reveal it. Here's what I would tell you. Bring it to the God who has more than enough ability to meet your need. And ask him. Give him your request right now. Give him your heart right now. Give him your faith right now. Give it to him. Don't sit there in your chair and come up with 15 reasons why this is going to be no different than any other time you went to church. Hello? Anybody? Be stirred up right now. He is the God who is more than, he has enough in him to heal you a thousand times over. He has enough to restore every dream you've ever had. 
I had two words from God this, I'm out of time, but what the heck? I'm so far out right now, what the heck? Listen to me, I got two things, I got two words from God I wrote down. Here was the first one. And I'm going to butcher it because I wrote it down and I didn't bring it with me. I was wait. Here it is. You, years ago, God told you he was going to bless you financially because you were going to be part of something he wanted to do in an end time issue. You got a word from God that he was going to do something financially for you. And between that time and where you are right now is so far that it is impossible. Like, like, like Moses saying, how am I going to deliver these people? The impossibility is so real that only God can do it. Here's what I say to you. What God would want is for you to take that dream and give it back to him and allow him to do with it what he wants to do. You quit trying to make it happen. You quit holding on to it. Give it back to God and let him do whatever he wants to with it. Whatever he wants to do. Second word was on kids. I know what it's like when you get a kid that goes the other way. You're doing everything you can do, and the kid goes the other direction. So you run to try to get in front of them to stop them. Only you're 49, and they're in their 20s. They can outrun you and outdodge you and move around you. And here was the word from the Lord. Give it back to him and let him have your kid. Don't be afraid. Trust him. You want to control it. You want to keep it from going a certain way. You're just like, I've invested too heavily. Your investment doesn't even come close to the investment that God has in your kid. Jesus gave his life, his blood for your kid. God hadn't forgotten. Every dream you've had, listen, for your kid, God does not use it like a carrot on a stick to tease you. He intends on satisfying your soul. Did you hear me? He will satisfy your soul. Maybe the highest call ever is to be a pastor who's able to minister hope to people. Not false hope, but real hope. I'm telling you the truth right now. I'm telling you the truth. Worship team, come on. All of our campuses, all campus pastors, you have the right to do whatever you need to do with your service. You control the time there and you control the ministry there and we fully trust you to do whatever you need to do to put the service in order when you have multiple services. We have the same thing right now here and I need to deal with that. Would you just pray with me real quick? Father, church, would you close your eyes and would you open your ears to hear what I need to say? Listen to me. Sometimes prophetically, I'm not a prophet. I don't consider myself to be a prophet. I'm a pastor. I'm going to be here next week. I'm going to be slugging it away next week. I, I didn't come in here tonight to stir up a bunch of emotions and then jump on a plane and I go someplace else and I don't have to worry about what I said. Everything I say, I have to live with it. Prophetically, from time to time, God moves on my heart and I say things and I don't even know the depth of the thing that I'm saying. It's just by the Spirit of God and I recognize it touches such a deep place inside the heart of a person. Sometimes I'll make a comment about marriage or make a comment about giving your child to God and you're going through a situation that is so desperate and so hard right now. You're, you're hurting right now. And it's not said with callousness. Instead, it's said with calculation to a certain degree. But then God 
takes it from there. And this is where faith comes in in your life. I'm a man, a human, just like you are. I do not have the power in and of myself to do any of these issues tonight, but I know the God who can do everything about what I said. I know the God who is more than enough to meet your needs. And that God wants to engage you in your place right now with His grace and His mercy and His promise, His, His love. He is here for you, longing to engage with you. So church, I bring it right to that point. When I close my prayer, I want you to stand to your feet and I want you to engage God. You can use communion. You can worship. You can receive prayer. You can use the crosses. You can use our altar. You can stay just right where you are. It doesn't matter. But I want you to engage God right now. We've got a few minutes even before. We have to vacate here for the next service. I want you to engage God for a few minutes. I want you to engage him over the issue of he is El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough. I don't know where the issue is in your life. But if you're willing, I believe that God is here to meet you. I pray that your faith is stirred enough to pray a prayer tonight. I pray that it's stirred enough to believe God, to quit starting and ending with what you have and begin to look at what He has. And I pray this right now in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Stand to your feet if you will. Engage the Lord at all of our campuses over that issue. He is El Shaddai the God who is more than enough.